So I'd like to welcome Dr. John Hurst and Ms. Ellen Ducker, uh, who are joining us today uh, for our ATS podcast on health inequities and pulmonary rehabilitation. So welcome to you both, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So um, I'm hoping that you can start first, uh, John, by telling us a little bit about your background and uh, how you contribute to the pulmonary rehabilitation field. Sure, thanks. So I'm an academic clinician. I suppose that's a good place to start. Um, So I spend half of my time working for the university, uh, leading research, and then half of the time working in the UK National Health Service and the NHS. Um, I've spent almost all of my time doing COPD, so I call myself a COPDologist. And so as a COPDologist, I recognise that pulmonary rehab is such an important part uh, of what we can offer to improve the lives of people with COPD. Uh, So I work closely with Ellen, uh, so you'll hear from her in a sec, uh, but basically I provide uh, some of the physicians, some of the medical uh, support to the pulmonary rehab classes that Ellen runs, and I suppose that's a good place to hand over to you, Ellen. Yeah, so I'm a respiratory physiotherapist. Um, I've worked in the NHS since I qualified as a as a physiotherapist, mostly within the field of respiratory. Um, and more specifically now, I lead the pulmonary rehab service in Camden, in London. Um, so yeah, work closely with John and, and other respiratory physicians, respiratory nurses uh, to deliver the programme um, specifically to the the COPD population, um, but potentially in the future to to other uh, respiratory conditions as well. And that would just be worth talking a little bit about Camden, in case people aren't so familiar with London. So London is a fabulously diverse place to live and to work. It's one of the reasons it makes it so exciting. Uh, and Camden is in central London, just to the north. Uh, And it is one of the parts of London that is associated with great disparities uh, in income, uh, in wealth and in health. And so I think some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today, Katie, kind of are on our minds as a a service that works in Camden. So hopefully that provides a bit of context too. That's wonderful. Thank you so much both uh, for that background. Uh, So I think that kind of gets us to our first question, which is, what do we know about disparities in healthcare in general? So maybe I'll start with Alwyn. What a question that is, Katie. Thank you for kicking us off right into the deep end of, uh, of this interesting uh, topic. I mean, I, I guess we probably have to ask ourselves what we mean by health disparities, right? So when I think about health disparities, I'm thinking about differences in health or health care across different groups. And those groups might be racial groups, ethnic groups, other socioeconomic groups. Um, And the first thing to say is that we know and recognize that health disparities exist. Um, And that's the first step, I guess, to challenging them and to thinking about some of the solutions that hopefully we're gonna go on and talk about uh, in a few minutes through the rest of the podcast. Uh, But I think people need to recognize that this is a real phenomenon uh, and to ask themselves where they work, what are they doing in the field of health disparities? Because without asking yourself that question, I think you risk exaggerating those disparities and that's that's not a good place to be. Thank you, John. Um, I wonder, and I think this comes up on everybody's mind, is 
uh, how these inequities might have changed either for the better or for the worse uh, in the past four years since the COVID pandemic started? Now, that's a really great question. I think we could probably think about that in two different ways. So I think COVID has exacerbated pre-existing disparities. Uh, so we could think about that in terms of who it was who was more likely to get really sick with COVID. Uh, and often it was people living with existing uh, non-communicable diseases, with chronic diseases, including COPD, but, but others too, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, for example. Um, so people who were already ill were more likely to get really sick with COVID. So that was a, an example of an exaggeration. Uh, you might put age in there too. So older people were, were more likely to be become more unwell with COVID. But then perhaps some less obvious things too. Um, and certainly uh, in London, uh, a lot of people shifted to working from home. A lot of our office workers, for example. Uh, and so we're less likely to catch COVID. But some people couldn't work from home, uh, healthcare workers, obviously, uh, but also perhaps transport workers, uh, shop workers. Uh, and so some people who are perhaps of a lower socioeconomic status, less wealthy, were the people who were not able so much to shield. And so perhaps that's an example of a new health disparity uh, that COVID uncovered. Um, and I think you could think about other ones as well in terms of vaccine access uh, in terms of uh, long COVID as well, not just the acute illness, but the ongoing illness. So a really complicated picture, Katie. It's a great question, but I think at, at its heart, you can think of COVID as exaggerating existing disparities and creating new ones. Thank you, John. Um, I'm wondering, I touched a little bit about socioeconomic status, um, which segues into... What do we know about someone's socioeconomic status and their outcomes in pulmonary rehabilitation? There's been a lot of research in, in the past into the, the socioeconomic impact um, on PR. Uh, the, there's a lot to say that the outcomes remain very good amongst a, a, a lower socioeconomic group. But then the issues lie more with the access to PR and then the um, adherence to, to pulmonary rehab as well. Um, so I think in some ways this was highlighted by, by COVID as well. So in the UK, um, there was quite a rapid shift to um, delivering pulmonary rehabilitation in a remote manner, um, but not everybody would have had access to uh, Wi-Fi, to devices to be able to, to take part in that. So potentially that's one area where the people of a lower socioeconomic status were, were disadvantaged. Um, thinking more about other, um, other ways in which they, they may be disadvantaged. So there's, there's evidence to say that People from a lower socioeconomic background are more likely to smoke, um, are generally younger as well. So they may be younger at the, the point of diagnosis of, of respiratory um, disease. And then that has practical implications. So are they still working? Whereas the, the bulk of our pulmonary rehab cohort might be um, retired, but these, these people are younger, they're not able to take time off work for the, the programme length. 
Um, so again, is that a, a barrier to them completing the course? Um, so I think they are the main things that need to be looked at when we're thinking about socioeconomic um, differences within pulmonary rehab is the access and the barriers to access. But then once we get these people onto pulmonary rehab, if we can keep them on the course, the outcomes are generally positive as they are with people um, of a higher socioeconomic status. That's excellent, Ellen, thank you. Um, I often, I agree, I think about uh, the patients who have the ability to take time off of work if they're working or, um, you know, whether that be schedule-wise or financially, and then thinking about transportation issues. Um, so it does seem like uh, we've talked about this uh, topic for a long time and haven't figured out a good answer in terms of meeting the needs of this population. Um, but I appreciate uh, your expertise and your answer and, there. And, and Katie, who's going to do that if, if we don't do that, right? So as a group of uh, respiratory clinicians working together, advocating for health for all, it's our responsibility. We, we've known about this, as you say, for some time. Outcomes are the same. This is an effective treatment, whoever you are. We've really got to ask ourselves some really difficult questions uh, when we reflect on what we're doing locally about this. I think that opens up a great question, which is how would you see pulmonary rehab delivered to meet the needs of maybe specifically this population of a lower socioeconomic status, um, working uh, groups that don't have flexibility? What, what do you foresee as some potential solutions to that problem? Uh, so, Thinking kind of practically and maybe where we've made a little bit of progress initially, um, although I mentioned that COVID may have have kind of highlighted this with the, the inequalities with being able to access remote or digital pulmonary rehab, as time has gone on, um, these things have become more accessible. So I know that that some services across the UK are able to support uh, patients with um, with equipment to to be able to access these things at home. Um, so sometimes that's a case of that means that they can do it in work, but don't have to come out to a centre if it's at a specific time, or that they can do these things in their own time after work to fit in with with their own schedule. So um, an increased access to digital remote pulmonary rehab um, and I think continuing to work on um, firming up those processes and making them more equal um, across different services, I think would be one thing. Um, transportation as well, you mentioned that in, in terms of um, that, that always comes up as a, a barrier to pulmonary rehab. Um, and I don't think that's just with um, with people with a lower socioeconomic status. I think generally the whole um, well majority of the population who want to access pulmonary rehab um, can sometimes struggle with the, the location. So um, having the option of services providing transport, um, we also speaking from a... Um, kind of a Camden perspective um, 
there's there's charities that are involved as well so um, there's a there's a charity that helps the homeless population who will provide their own transport so again that's another agency that's involved that can help to motivate these patients and remove that barrier to get them there so i think there are some ways that we're making steps forwards um to increase this accessibility um but I would say that there is still more to be done. And the more that we involve this group in the talks and discussions around um, around that, the better really to see what, what matters to them. Thank you so much, Ellen. Um, you describe these things and I really, it starts to sound like uh, we need support of a case manager to help facilitate these things. Um, and I am personally not aware of uh, a robust amount of literature um, with case management. Um, I don't know if either of you know about how kind of meeting the needs of the population that needs a little bit more in terms of support, um, if there is data out there about, uh, you know, providing someone who can really help facilitate overcoming these barriers on an individual basis in pulmonary rehab. That's a really good point, Casey. I think there's a lot of research going on in that area at the moment. So, uh, for example, I'm aware of a research project taking place in the UK at the moment where they're using peer support. Uh, they call them PR buddies. Um, so that's uh, somebody living with COPD who's been through rehab who understands what it's like, but will, who will advocate it, advocate for that with somebody else who's not been to rehab. And I think often getting someone to rehab the first time is the hardest thing. Once they actually get there and realise it's not about lifting weights in Lycra. You know, it's a, it's a group of similar people learning uh, and exercising together. That barrier is broken down. So I'm, I, I really look forward to seeing the results of, of, of that kind of research. And we've been doing some other stuff locally in Camden that maybe Ellen's better, uh, sorry, in North London, that maybe Ellen's better place to talk about in terms of delivery of pulmonary rehab for people who are homeless. Ellen, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. So there's um, a, a specific um, kind of working group, I, I guess, uh, within um, North Central London at the moment, looking at how we can tackle um, these disparities. Um, so it's headed up by, by two physiotherapists and then links in with all of the, the local teams. Um, and one project that they have set up is a pulmonary rehab class at the Arsenal football stadium um, to kind of take the patients away from that healthcare setting. Um, and it's mostly for patients who are homeless, um, or, who, or who struggle with drug and alcohol abuse. Um, and, you know, they can provide incentives. So there's uh, there's food available, there's charities to provide transport. It's They're working with a kind of a, a peer group amongst themselves, and they tend to be that younger population as well. So they don't always necessarily want to come to kind of what we'd call mainstream pulmonary rehab, um and exercise within that that normal group setting so that's a an exciting um thing to to have been a, a part of so the the team have done a really good job with it um and also 
gives some some hope for the future that these things can be can be set up um, and have really positive effects. That's wonderful. Thank you, Ellen, so much. Um, I, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the socioeconomic status, um, but I'm wondering if there are other disease states that might make a patient more vulnerable to health inequity. So we talked a little bit about smoking status, but are there other things that we should be thinking of? John, maybe you can take this one. Yeah, I think that I think that there are. Um, very much on our mind at the moment is, is the idea that it's really rather unusual to find somebody with COPD who isn't living with other long-term conditions as well. Um, we used to think of comorbidities, but I think probably it's more person-centered to think about COPD being a component of multimorbidity. Uh, and so often people are struggling, not just with their COPD, but with other conditions as well. And I think some of those other conditions can make access to healthcare more difficult. Uh, and some of those conditions might make completion of PR uh, more difficult for all sorts of different reasons. And one that clearly brings to mind for me uh, is people living with severe mental illness. Uh, so very common to see anxiety and depression in people with COPD, uh, but people with significant problems with mental health may not be able to get to PR classes, may be less likely to complete uh, PR classes. So, so that would be one. Um, and I also look towards, because this ATS is a global organization, so I think we need to think globally as well. And, and I'm really interested in the idea that uh, as people achieve wider viral suppression in people living with HIV, that the non-communicable diseases in people living with HIV are becoming more and more prominent. Uh, so that's a challenge for the world more widely, um, as it is here in Camden. So I guess my take-home message around this is to consider all the conditions that the people are, people are living with. So be holistic, consider their multimorbidity and ask yourself the question, are any of these issues or any of these conditions making it more or less likely that they're going to have a good outcome with rehab and what can we do to support people, for example, uh, with mental illness or cardiovascular disease to be able to complete rehab successfully and safely. Thank you, John. Um, I... So we've had this really lively discussion um, about the ways that maybe things could be better. Um, and it brings me back at least uh, in the healthcare system in the USA um, about how the system itself kind of contributes to disparities. And obviously um, you have experience in the UK and maybe the National Health Service. Um, and I'm curious how the systems might um, propagate the disparities that we're seeing? Well, I think that's such an important area as well, because I think the system can be set up to perpetuate disparities, or it can be set up to mitigate them. Uh, and that's not to perpetuate disparities deliberately, because nobody sets out to do that. But a system might be set up uh, in a way that uh, accidentally uh, exaggerates those disparities. I think we really have to challenge that. And so some obvious examples, some of which we've already been talking about. So, uh, for example, by having uh, rehab classes only during the day in the weekday makes it difficult for people who are working to attend, particularly people who can't afford, as you said, Katie, earlier, to take time off work to attend. So that's an example of a, a structural perpetuation of disparity that the healthcare service could 
had it been set up in a different way, chosen to do things differently with classes at weekends or evenings. Not easy to do, but if you're really serious about that, you need to think about doing things in different ways. Uh, and I think language is another uh, really great example of that. Um, something, again, that we really challenge ourselves with, uh, because when we look around our local rehabilitation classes uh, in London, as in the rest of the UK, and we have national audit in, in the UK that supports what I'm about to say, uh, the patients, sorry, the people living with COPD who are attending pulmonary rehab classes are not reflective in their entirety of the societies from what they're drawn, from which they're drawn. Uh, so Camden, as I said, is very diverse, uh, but we see very few people, for example, from our local Somali population or from our local Bengali speaking population on our PR classes. And why is that? You know, are, are we not providing those services in a way which are culturally appropriate? Are we not providing training to the healthcare staff who work in primary care, who support those populations? We have to ask ourselves those questions and we have to be really certain that the systems that we've set up are doing nothing to perpetuate disparities and are ideally actively mitigating them as we go along. So I think that directs me to Ellen, where I'd like to hear maybe some things that we've done that are successful. Um, can you speak on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes it's the going back to the simple things. So um, are we doing things like providing uh, literature on pulmonary rehabilitation in accessible ways? So whether that is um, written, written information that is free of jargon um, and sometimes in large print so that you know, people people can access it. Are we providing um, video or audio options um, for those who aren't able to read? Uh, some of those really simple things that we can just tick off to to kind of know that we are accessing those populations. Do we have um, the ability to translate that material? into the, the relevant languages? Do we have access to translator services? So I think that's something along with increased access to transport over the last few years has some, is become much more accessible. And, you know, if you if you get a patient coming through, you can just call the, the service now and have a, a translator there ready. So um, we made some good steps practically um, and like I said, the the kind of exciting uh, research around um, completing pulmonary rehab in a remote setting. So there's been a, a wealth of research to show that the outcomes are um, similar and, and good to face-to-face -face pulmonary rehabilitation. Um, so we need to think, how can we kind of push this forward and make it as accessible to everybody? Is that employing people who can deliver tech support at home? Is it gaining funding so that we can provide tablets um, that, you know, have 4G on so we don't need Wi-Fi? I think some of the really, it's the, the practical things. Um, and I also think we just need to keep asking this question to the patients as well. So what is what are the barriers that you perceive um, of coming to pulmonary rehabilitation? How can we make it easier for you to get here? Um, and involving community groups that they're part of as well. If we if we know that 
there's a group that we're unable to access, but we know have high instances of uh, respiratory disease. Can we go to them and say, um, what is what is stopping you from accessing this service? What can we do to make it easier for you? That's wonderful, Ellen. And I actually have a follow up question for you about that, because uh... I, you know, it's to me, when we're talking about these things, I think about the fact that we've talked about adherence, right? And the to meet disparities um, and inequities to prevent uh, uh, people from dropping out. Um, but we've also discussed about just getting them in the door. And a big um, piece of that in my mind is making sure that people are referred. Um, and so I wonder if you have a message to people like myself, so physicians or prescribers of pulmonary rehab, healthcare practitioners, um, who what they should be thinking about in terms of health equity when they're seeing patients in clinic and, uh, and the referral to pulmonary rehab. Yeah, so I, I do think one of the main things is involving the patient in that discussion. And if you sense any kind of apprehension when you're talking about pulmonary rehab, address it at that point. Um, I think as well, including anything that might be relevant when you then refer that patient to the pulmonary rehab team, um, that will help them engage the patient more. So in with our um, homeless population, we ask for uh, referrers to put the, the key worker name and number on the referral form. So we have that additional contact where we know that some of these, these patients um, are difficult to, to get in contact with via phone. Um, and if they have no kind of fixed address that we can we can write to, then we have that additional contact to to be able to um, recruit them. And then we can also discuss that with the key worker as well. That's somebody trusted to that person um, and getting them on side will be a big win in getting the patient on side as well. So I think if there's anything along those lines that could go onto the referral form to then make the the pulmonary rehab team that's looking at that more aware of what they're going to need to address that's really um really helpful i think asking questions as well to the pulmonary rehab team themselves so um you know we try to be as as open as possible we're we're friendly we encourage people to call up to email and to ask any questions that they have about the service and who they're referring into us. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work with different community groups where we've gone out and spoken about COPD, spoken about pulmonary rehab to people that didn't know much about it beforehand. And we're then not expecting these people to be experts in it, but we would love it if they thought that person might benefit from that. I'll give the team a call and just see if they have any more advice on how to, to get them there. So I think communication um, and involving all of the necessary parties at that stage is really important. And I know that something as, as someone who looks at the referrals and recruits patients onto the programme, um, that's something that we, we really like to see. Great, Ellen. I think this brings me uh, to John. I wonder if 
you have thoughts about um, automated referrals for practitioners or physicians, because uh, I worry about implicit bias. Um, some, you know, uh, uh, healthcare providers maybe not even thinking about a patient who has potentially a lot of barriers to participating in pulmonary rehab and ways to overcome the implicit bias of our of our healthcare force. Yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? Um, and something else I'm going to mention in relation to that is intersectionality as well. So I think sometimes we're, we're thinking about these health disparities and isolation actually for some of our most vulnerable people have most difficulties because they're living with intersectionality across different disparities. So, so making a kind of opt out, not opt in method of referral to pulmonary rehabilitation may be one way to do that. Uh, and, and in a sense, the, the UK is trying to do that. So we have a national COPD audit programme in the UK that's part of a wider national respiratory audit programme. And as part of that, everybody who's admitted to hospital uh, with an exacerbation of going home is supposed to have something called a discharge bundle, a component of which is uh, referral to pulmonary rehabilitation. So far, so good. Everybody's supposed to get that. Uh, but of course, ticking a box to say that you've done that is not the same as having a meaningful conversation with someone uh, and actually getting them to that class. So uh, whether a automated referral will generate uh, greater pull through to people actually being at the class and to completing class, I think is a, is a valid research question that needs testing. It would certainly reduce the implicit bias, uh, as you say, in who is getting referrals and who is not. But is it going to make a difference on the ground? We don't know. And I think that's, that's a good example of uh, a research question, which I don't think is answered properly at the moment. Great. Well, I I guess that brings me to um, what are some potential future exciting areas of research uh, in uh, barriers in pulmonary rehabilitation, John? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. I'm actually just going to uh, make a plug for a short review written by Lucy Gardner and Sally Singh. If people haven't seen it, it's written in uh, Chronic Respiratory Disease 2022 about inequality in pulmonary rehab and how it's been exaggerated by COVID. There's a lot in there about what we know and what we don't. And it's a great place to start if listeners to the podcast want to know more. I think it's, it's really nicely written. Uh, but that makes the point uh, that we know a lot. We know that these health disparities are there. They are well described. Um, and in a sense, because we are interested in that, um, but also in a sense, because that's, relatively speaking in research, the easier bit to do to describe a problem. What's really, really thorny is addressing that. Uh, and, and not the question, by the way, does pulmonary rehab work? We know pulmonary rehab works. We need to uh, move beyond that. This is about getting pulmonary rehab to work in real life uh, and getting it to the people who need it. And for us in Camden, that might be, as you've heard from Ellen, uh, our homeless population or populations who struggle with drug and alcohol use or populations who don't have English as a first language. So we have those challenges here in Camden. But those challenges are true globally as well. So if you look at the nearly 400 million people living in the world with COPD, very few of them have access to pulmonary rehab. Pulmonary rehab still works. But how do you get people to actually do it? How do you implement that? And there's a whole field of implementation science, which I guess is a topic for a podcast another day. But by bringing people with implementation science expertise and skills into the rehab community, hopefully we can start to do something special. And boy, do we need to do that. That's a 
wonderful um, way to start wrapping up this podcast. Um, I think I'd leave with maybe um, a single question for each of you, hopefully to answer. Um, and Ellen, I'd like to start with you. Uh, what's one thing you want a listener of this podcast to take away um, in terms of how they take it back out into the world and to the way they practice um, in terms of disparities and PR? Okay. I think um, the main thing that I would want is to people to be more aware of this in their day-to-day practice. So the kind of concept around making every contact count with a patient. So when they encounter a patient that is either starting on the, the pulmonary rehab course or they're thinking of referring to pulmonary rehab, um, just having this in the back of their head or of um, is this person likely to face any barriers to pulmonary rehab? Do they have um, an equal chance of um, accessing it and adhering to the program? And is there anything I can do to make that easier for the patient? Uh, So I think just having that constant increased awareness. And I think that's definitely something since starting in the the team and um, primarily being in pulmonary rehab, something that has uh, grown in my own mind and something that now I'm constantly kind of aware of whenever I encounter patients whether they are on the pulmonary rehab course or they're not Uh, it's something that I feel really aware of and I think it's just it's the start uh, just to have that awareness and then you can build on that that's great Ellen thank you and John same question well, thanks, Katie, and thanks for asking me to go second because I can listen to what Ellen has said and just say the same thing in a different way. Because actually, I completely agree with Ellen, and so I'm going to say it in a, in a in a slightly different way. But we're saying the same thing, and for me, that's about knowing and understanding what your local chronic respiratory population looks like, and then asking yourself the really difficult question, the really important question: Is my service mitigating, or is it perpetuating? the disparities. And if it's perpetuating them, what am I going to do about it? And if it's mitigating them, how can I share what I do? And how can I do what I do better? And if we all do that, we're going to be in a better place. And our patients deserve nothing less. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, This was a wonderful discussion and I appreciate the expertise uh, and the passion that you provide to this topic. Uh, Thank you so much, and we'll wrap up here. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. All right.